0: Hi everybody, how's it going? This is Hugo Che, and this is another episode of the Traveling Image Makers Podcast. This week we still have a special episode. Uh, this is the continuation of last week's episode where we feature the recording of the panel discussion that was held at the Out of Chicago Summer Conference. Uh, the discussion, if you remember, was about the state of uh, landscape photography, and the panelists uh, are uh, Josh Cripps, Ian Plant, and Bill Fortney. Uh, This week, we present you the last half of that conversation, um, still with uh, Josh Cripps and Ian Plant. Uh, Bill Forney had to leave after the first hour, but uh, the the remaining two panelists were uh, as engaging and as funny as ever. So I trust you will uh, love this um, this episode and we will be back with uh, our normal uh, scheduled interviews next week. You will also be able to find all the links and show notes for this episode at ttim.photo forward slash 88. And now let's listen to the conversation about the state of landscape photography. Thanks for listening.
1: If I I could just add to what Josh and Bill just said, you know, I I said earlier that as a photographer, uh, your job is to to show people something that they haven't seen. And in, in a sense, part of having an artistic vision is that you are going to see something that other people don't see. And you're going, to, you're going to try to show them that through your photographs. But they're not always going to see it. They're not always going to see what you've seen. And if you're really good as a photographer, I think by definition you're going to be seeing things that most people can't uh, comprehend. And you know, one of the, the, the greatest things for me is, you know, I like it when people like my work. But what I like more than anything is when I have a photo that I personally love, and I put it up online, and I get nothing at all. But then one person emails me and says, you know, I loved that shot you put up. Uh, and, and, you know, that one person gets it. To me, that, that's the kind of work that I, strangely enough, enjoy making more than anything. Because, in a sense, the narrower uh, the, the reaction... Uh, perhaps that means that you're you're shooting something that's uh, a little bit higher, a little bit more rarefied. Of course, there's a fine line between that and just being absolutely awful as a photographer.
2: So <laughs>
1: take what I just said
2: with a grain of salt. Well, it kind of reminds me of something that I tend to think of as the uh, vanilla yogurt phenomenon, right? Like everybody likes vanilla yogurt; it's very agreeable. But is it anybody's favorite? Well, uh, it's my favorite. It I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But you know what I mean. (laughs) The idea is you can make art that kind of is agreeable to everybody, or you can make stuff that is a very specific statement that some people are not going to like, probably. Some people are going to absolutely adore. Hopefully you adore it more because it's a very specific statement that you want to make, not just. Here's a pretty picture that I hope everybody thumbs up.
1: Uh, well, I, I think I have a, an analogy that, that might work better than your vanilla yogurt analogy, if it's okay for me to jump in. Okay, so uh, no matter how popular any photograph will ever be online, uh, some stupid cat video is going to be a million times more popular. Uh, so the fact that, that a lot of people like something doesn't really mean anything, I guess, You know, is, is the way I would put it. So having some, you know, uh, uh, you know, take a look at like pop music. I mean, no one would, would think that today's... I don't even know who today's pop stars are. I, mean, I, I talk about Britney Spears because that was the last time I paid attention to pop music. Uh,
2: no one would ever think... She's relevant again. She is.
1: I think so. Oh, I wouldn't have the famous clue. Um, no one would ever think that someone like that is, is as good as Mozart. Uh, but I guarantee that her music is far more popular these days than Mozart's music. So, yeah.
0: Okay, so I would like to change topic a bit and introduce the dreaded business topic. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) So, uh, my question to you is, uh, people might have a romantic view of the landscape photographer, somebody who is always in nature, but what was the reality? How much actually do you spend in the field? And how much do you actually do promoting, shamelessly promoting yourself online? (laughs) What's the ratio between business a TV view?
1: I carry a satellite hub with me, so even when I'm in the field, I'm still shamelessly promoting myself my huh? life. <laughs> Sorry, Josh, why do you field this one?
2: Well, um, I was going to say, I don't know that, that Ian and I are maybe the best examples uh, for this question, because we both spend a lot of time traveling, and we spend a lot of time in the field. And I think that comes down to priorities and why you're doing photography. Um, are you doing it to become a very successful photographer, or are you doing it to enable you to have the kind of experiences that you want? so that's what i've been endeavoring to do and um, i've known him for a while online we just met in person yesterday um, but i get the sense that he's the same kind of person that it's about the experience and so i don't i i tend to have a little bit of a workaholic personality uh, but i try to not let the work get in the way of doing the things that i want to do um, so like for me personally, this is doing nothing for your argument, but I spent I think that's last year I spent about six months on the road mm-hmm. um, and a lot of really and I've already been on the road about four months this year um, and most of that is spent in places like Colombia Bolivia, Argentina so uh, I, I spend a lot of time traveling but then when I get home I just lock myself in the office for Eighteen hours a day and do all the business. Yeah, my, my experience
1: is almost identical. I, mean, I I typically aim to be gone between forty five and fifty percent of the time, uh, which uh, is a great number for me. My wife's not so appreciative of it, but uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I don't have a life when I come home. I mean, I I literally the only thing in my life that means anything is photography. I don't I don't have friends at home. Uh, I don't hang out with people. Oh, my, it drives my wife crazy. She's like, you know, you're not, she's like, you're antisocial. I'm like, no, I hang out with photographers when I'm in the field. Like, I have plenty of friends. They're just all over the world. <laughs> um, but it's the only thing that matters to me. So uh, even though I'm, I'm gone a lot, when I'm, when I'm away, I try to stay productive as, as I possibly can. Uh, and when, just like Josh said, when I'm home, I'm constantly attending uh, to the business side of uh, I always feel like I'm playing catch-up with all the business that I couldn't attend to when I was gone. Um, but uh, I, I think for a lot of us, uh, we really literally live, uh, sleep, eat, breathe photography. I tell my wife that uh, my camera is my wife. She's my mistress. And uh, <laughs> you can tell why she's always threatening to divorce me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's just a way of life. So. But the business side is absolutely imperative. Uh, and uh, I think the business changed a lot when the internet uh, explosion happened about 12 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, most photographers don't make their money uh, selling photographs anymore, but they, there is this huge opportunity to reach a wide world uh, worldwide audience. Um, to, uh, to sell educational services and materials, so, so the business, I would say that the business opportunities have actually in some ways expanded, uh, but it was easy back in the day for nature photographers to be anti-social hermits who never had to deal with human beings. They would just go out, take pictures. I knew some, some of the legends of film photography who would, would be out on the road. 250 days out of the year. I mean, they were barely home. That's all they did is t- took photographs and then just sent them in to their stock agency or to magazine editors. They never had any real personal human contact. Uh, I think those days are gone. Uh, you know, you really do have to have a lot of business savvy to succeed in t- today's environment and think critically about marketing your work. Uh, it's But I think that if you if you can do it and do it right, you, you can be very successful uh, financially as a photographer.
0: Are you do
1: workshops, in your I I just quit doing workshops, of course. Actually, I I, I did that for quite some time, and uh, it was eating up a, it was eating up on my field time. That's why I stopped doing it. Uh, I wasn't doing the photography I wanted to do because I was I was almost always traveling with clients, and um, uh, so I decided to I call it a sabbatical, but I, it's really retiring from that business, and I'm focusing more of my energies on on my personal photography. Uh, and creating educational material to, to market to people online, e-books and educational videos. So I'm actually trying to broaden my education mission uh, that way. Which you can find by visiting e <laughs> 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 the Cards. You know.
2: yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you forget that, you can you take one of those business cards. Uh, well, What's your Josh? Yeah. You?
0: You
2: yeah. As Ian said, um, and. To be honest with you, I don't have the wealth of experience that, that these guys have um, in terms of the business side of things. I got into the business almost by accident, right? I was just doing photography for myself, and then my mom was like, These are really good. I should try to sell these. <laughs> All right. um, and so I got into doing art festivals, and I did a bazillion art festivals around the San Francisco Bay Area for a lot of years, and then noticed the shift of people coming into the booth saying, uh, Wow, that's a really that's a really nice photo um, and they used to say oh, how much is that and then this towards the end of my run doing art festivals they would say I saw a great photo uh, I just bought a camera how can I do that <laughs> and uh, and so a, a buddy of mine uh, an amazing landscape photographer named Jim Patterson uh, we're in the same boat at the same time and just kind of you know bitching a little bit about it. like we want to sell our prints how come people just want to learn I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Seems like an opportunity. Uh, and so, yeah, we basically just said, we saw the writing on the wall and said, uh, everybody's getting into photography. And in some ways, it's making the competition a lot more difficult to sell images. But at the same time, it's actually exploding the marketplace for people who want to learn how to express themselves with the camera. So we got to be doing workshops. One of the reasons
0: I was asking this is because yesterday, speaking with Bill, he told me that he's saying, uh, well, he's probably not doing workshops anymore, but he was saying the age, the average age of his attendees to become uh, older and older. And he said on his last workshop, the average age was uh, 71. So I was wondering when all those people who go to workshops nowadays are dead, who will take their place. <laughs> well, so are, are the, are the young people, are, they are not so much into landscape photography?
1: Well, well, so your... so, so in, in many ways, what, you know, what you're talking about, it is the baby boomer generation uh, that has been fueling changes in the photography market and every other aspect of American and European life, uh, where, where we've seen these big post-war generations now come to retirement. And it, so it's creating all sorts of challenges for all societies who are, who are dealing with this because these populations are no longer working and they're pushing into retirement. Um, and they're, right now they're spending a lot of money. So the, part of the explosion of the photography business, you know, the internet, digital photography changed things. But more than anything, what has changed the business has been that baby boomer generation pushing into retirement. Uh, and because that generation is bigger than the generations that come after it, uh, that inevitably means that the business, the, the, the entire industry for photography is going to shrink in the next 10 to 15 years, as, you know, a lot of the, a lot of folks uh, that have been, you know, when I was doing workshops and tours, I had a lot of repeat customers who had been taking tours with me for years, who were saying to me, you know what, this is going to be my last tour, I'm, I'm getting too old to travel, you know, I, I would hear that a lot, so that, that it's not that there's less people who are younger who are interested, there's plenty of young people out there, it's just that that... Generation is small. Those generations are smaller than, than what is right now fueling this explosive growth in photography in the photography industry. Uh, so you know, I view that as a challenge. Though I think that in large part, uh, uh, the fact that, that China has risen as a large economy is gonna is uh, going to replace a lot of uh, of those customers as they age out. Um, I, th- I think we're you know. If you're, if you're going to be a, a landscape photographer educator, you should learn Chinese because uh, they, they, you know their Chinese tourists are all over the world now, and it really is going to be a huge uh, growth market, uh, I think, going forward. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an interesting challenge.
0: Yeah. Uh, another topic, or more than a topic, I would like to maybe to ask you about some some stories from the field, so to speak, so maybe to share some of your experiences. What was your worst experience in the field. Maybe they're wanting to get some some photo and your plans failed, or what was your best experience in the field? So what do you say? What would you say?
2: Um, well I kind of wow, I wish I had brought a little like, projector out of it. So for me uh, there's one thing that immediately comes to mind which is uh, simultaneously the worst and one of the best moments I've had as a photographer. So uh, last year in, what was last year, 2016, Yeah. Uh, so I was uh, traveling in New Zealand, and has anybody here been to New Zealand? It's just absolutely breathtaking, right? And did you guys happen to visit Mount Cook National Park when you were there? It's utterly fantastic, right? You're at low elevation, there's glaciers everywhere, and it's perfectly wonderful triangular mountains taking over everything. Uh, so this was at the very end, I spent about six weeks traveling around the country, and at the very, very end of my trip, um, it, just this huge storm had blown in from Antarctica, and the whole South Island was getting humbled. It was raining. That was really frustrating for me, because I'm a mountain guy, I love being in the mountains. Like, the coast is nice, but I want to be nice. So, uh, just to escape the weather, we were on the, traveling with my friend Jessica, and just on the, the dry kind of east coast and we saw a little break said, oh, let's, let's go let's just go to the mountains there's a 24-hour window we'll go for a hike perfect so we went into Mount Cook National Park and we went and talked to the visitor center and they said yeah we've got about a 24-hour break in this storm coming up so great we're going to hike up to a place called uh, the Mueller hut it's about a three-hour walk up from Mount Cook Village and uh, and so We started out, and it's just absolutely pissing down rain. I mean, I'm wearing the best, like, top-of-the-line Arcteryx equipment, and I'm soaked to the skin. And and we're like, well, it's supposed to break. Let's let's see what happens. We keep going, we keep going, we keep going. After about an hour or so, we start seeing snow on the ground. Well, it's supposed to break. (laughs) Let's keep going. And uh, and eventually, after about two hours, we got to the ridge line. You climb really steeply for two hours, and then you just shoot across to the hut. And when we got to the ridge line, the winds were blowing 130K, something like that, like 80 mile an hour, constant, with gusts over 100 miles an hour. And at this point, it's snowing and hailing. It's absolutely (laughs) freezing cold, and we're soaked to the skin. So we have have two options here. Uh, We can walk two hours back down to the cars, or 20 minutes to the hut. Right, and we're like let's go to the hut, let's get changed warm up now we can make a rational decision right. so we get there and we're in, and this when I say hut uh, it's actually a 28 bunk bunk house with a separate cooking and dining room and different rooms and a war room and so it's a, it's a huge structure and the winds are so strong that this entire structure is just doing this and that we're looking at as going. We, we can't go back out unless this is just ridiculous conditions. And so they have the radios. We call down uh, to the, the visitor center and say, um, where's this break? And they say, well, it's still forecast to come. It's just been delayed a little bit. So, um, you know, it should start to break around 7 o'clock tonight. So we're in there. We're just eating soup. And it's, there's no heating in the hut, so it's right around freezing. We got all our down stuff on. But... Uh, we're just sitting there hanging out. We brought everything to sleep overnight We said, okay, so we recommend if you have your equipment, just stay overnight in the morning. Yeah, you should have a break and you can come back down. That's great. Sure enough, about 7 o'clock, the clouds start to break apart and the stars come out and Mount Cook appears and I go out and it's still blowing like crazy, uh, but I'm having absolute blast. There's a little boulder and I'm down below the boulder trying to stay out of the wind with my long lens doing these long exposure star shots of the mountain having an absolute ball Then we go to sleep that night i wake up the next morning excited for the break in the weather and the sunrise is absolutely glorious and beautiful but uh what happened was overnight the freezing level had dropped really unexpectedly it was supposed to stay around 2500 meters and it dropped down to about 1700 meters which is below the level of the hut so all this wet slushy snow that had fallen overnight was now a sheet of ice about five inches thick completely solid and, and it's still blowing 80 miles an hour and so i literally was out there being blown across the ice uh, just sliding and the hut itself is in a flat area which pres- then has precipitous drop offs. And so uh, I was just blown until I hit a rock, and then I was able to, luckily I had spikes on my tripod, kind of dig those in, work my way back to the hut, and it was so slippery that there's like a tiny little incline like this, maybe five degrees, and I was just scrabbling up this thing and sliding back. And so we get back in I said, like, do we have a problem? <laughs> because we weren't expecting the freezing level to drop, so we didn't have ice axes to the have cramp onto us. And we started to, we, we got to get out of here now. And we, we left, and uh, we it, immediately were just on our, on our asses, our feet going out sliding down uncontrollably down. We ended up sliding down this one gully and fetching up on a layer of rock about a centimeter high. And as I was turning around, my water bottle... Popped out of my backpack and was just instantly gone down hundreds of meters of ice over the cliffs onto the, the glacier hundreds of feet below. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, uh, We should go back to the hut because if, if either of us falls down now, we're dead. We're, we're just dead. And so uh, I took about 30 minutes. We we're only about 1,000 feet from the hut. It took us about 30 minutes because I took the spikes and tried my feet and hacked out footsteps in the ice for every single footstep for a thousand feet. We got back to the hut and um, we ended up so long story short because anyway so we ended up having to spend two more days in the hut and we ran out of food and then had to be rescued by helicopter eventually Uh, but on that last morning uh, of course the conditions for helicopter are calm weather and good visibility and so that last morning dawned absolutely without a cloud in the sky, not a breath of wind, and the most beautiful glow I've ever seen in my entire life is just beaming across, hitting the atmosphere, hitting all these snow-covered peaks, and, you know, we'd had about three feet of fresh snow that had fallen over the three days that we were stuck there. And it was just pristine, beautiful, completely untouched landscape, and then you have this ruby-red light that strikes all the mountain, just like this very breathtaking experience. And and then the helicopter came and that was a really nice feeling, as well. (laughs) Uh, And uh, and then we got a, a, it was so great, uh, I'll try to wrap it up quickly. The Kiwis are such great people, they're like, uh, yeah, we got to charge you for the helicopter, you know, and... um, Sorry about that. uh, Anyway, um, and so we're thinking, oh my God, like a helicopter rescue, how much is that going to cost, right? Uh, like they're like yeah it's gonna be pretty you know pretty expensive to so we charge it for the flight time well it takes six minutes to fly from the base to the to the hut and back down so they'd be like it's gonna be 600 New Zealand dollars uh, that's about 400 us split two ways we picked 200 dollars each for this helicopter rescue which which
1: you you would save that money by not eating for two days and we would get a scenic flight up at the same time. so Well, I wish I had a single nature-almost-killed-me story, but uh, (laughs) unfortunately I I have uh, far too many. Uh, And uh, it's not for lack of caution. uh, I'm very cautious when I'm shooting, but uh, often we're putting ourselves in in, uh, difficult situations to get the shot, and it's never worth dying to get a good shot. But sometimes it it seems like maybe it it is. Um, And even if you're very cautious, uh, bad things can happen, but you know it's usually not the landscape that's trying to kill me. It's the wildlife photography, where where I've had some of my most interesting encounters. Uh, you know, just in the past year, I uh, I was lightly mauled by an orangutan. Um, yeah, I was. It was more like a mugging. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've been uh, I've been attacked by a sea turtle. Um, I, yeah. It's not like animals... Well, an orangutan can do a lot of damage because yeah. they're very strong. They can grip an arm off if they, they were so inclined. Uh, but, you know, like a sea turtle. I mean, come on. I, I could take a sea turtle. <laughs> <laughs> they're not really good fighters. <laughs> uh, the flippers, they're just, just ridiculous when they try to punch you with those. Um, I've, had, I've had a lot of uh, interesting wildlife encounters, like bull elephants unexpectedly just coming out of nowhere and being angry and, uh, you know, things like that. Um, but I, I do my very best uh, to be smart about this. But uh, even the best laid plans can go awry. I remember once I was photographing bison in, uh, in Yellowstone National Park. And, of course, a lot of wildlife photographers will talk about the ethics of not getting too close to the animal. But they don't tell you what happens when the animal gets too close to you. So the bison were coming towards me. Big <laughs> fold. Yeah, right, so, <laughs> so the bison were coming towards me, and I, I had an escape route. I'm like, all right, if it gets too close, I'm going to back up, and my vehicle is, is parked on the road uh, 15, 20 feet away. I'm going to go behind the vehicle and wait for the, the bison to go past. So the bison reached that threshold, so I got up, turned around, and there was another bull that had decided to stand right in my hiding spot. And so, like, I was trapped. I couldn't go anywhere. I didn't have anywhere to go, so this... This giant two-ton animal is walking right at me. And uh, the, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've just got to get down in a, in a, in a, you know, put myself in, into a small, non-threatening package. So I sat down, and I, I kept my eyes down, and I scrunched up as much as I could. So I didn't actually see the bison as it came by me. Um, but I could feel it. I could smell it. And, uh Afterwards, I, I asked the photographer I was with, I'm like, how close did that bison get to me? He's like, oh, yeah, just, you know, like two feet away. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an animal that can kill you easily. Uh, but but the, one of the most thrilling experiences I had, one of the most ex- uh, thrilling near-death experiences I had, is when I was photographing mountain gorillas in Rwanda. And uh, they warn you ahead of time that the gorillas will sometimes come in close, and they may knock you over or something like that. That, that this It's not really being aggressive. It's just just showing you who's boss. And I was like, alright, that's, that's cool. It, right? One ton, you know, giant animal just but knocks you over. And all. Um, so at one point I'm with one of the trackers. He pulled me aside to photograph a silverback. Silverback's about 20 feet away. Silverback gets up and decides he's going to walk right by us. And he's going by us. Uh, he reaches out and gives a mighty shove to the tracker who's standing right next to me knocking the guy over. And then the gorilla walked right by me. And I was so disappointed that, that I wasn't the one who got knocked over by the gorilla. I wanted that on my resume. Once pushed over by a silverback gorilla. Uh, that, that was a real amazing experience because to be so close to, to an animal, a magnificent, powerful animal like that, is really incredible. I've had a lot of experiences like that. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you any one experience as a landscape or wildlife photographer that stands above the grass because that's that's our lives is is going out and experiencing these amazing things I mean every time I take a photograph of something I'm doing it because there's something amazing happening and uh, so you know I think my work shows those amazing experiences that I've had and then and then there's the amazing experiences that don't translate into a photo Uh, and and you know I've, I've I just can't even count those. Just being out there and, and, and seeing uh, these amazing sunrises and sunsets over beautiful scenery—I you know, would never trade it for anything else. There's no way I could ever go back to you know, my real job <laughs> or anything else. You know, this—and uh, we were asked in the beginning, you know, why we do this. And I do it because there's there's no there's nothing else. It's all that I am. It, it's 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 who I am. And so it's it's more than a. hobby, it's more than a career, it's more than a passion, it's more than a way of life. It's hard to describe, but I can't imagine doing anything else but photography.
0: Great. We still have a few minutes for audience questions, so if you want to to ask a few. Uh, I will repeat the questions before you answer for for the recording. Okay. Uh, Anyone? You? After all these years of taking photos, is this still something that you struggle with? So the question is: After all these years of taking photos, is there still something that you struggle with?
2: I think for me, every every photo is a struggle uh, because you are trying to distill an experience into a, a single moment, a single two-dimensional representation of the uh, of the moment that you're that you're having. And that's the challenge and the and the reward of knowing that. Oh, if I just move a little bit over this way, somehow it everything comes together. Or if I, um, you know, if, I, I think a lot of the times the challenge is knowing when you've got it and knowing when you should stick around or when you should move or when you should do. And you're always, uh, I don't know about Ian, but I'm always second-guessing myself. Is the light going to get better? Could I find another composition over there? Should I give up on something here seek out over there? And I think like, like anything you do in life, the more that you challenge yourself, when you succeed, it's a far greater reward. So uh, personally, every time I go out, I, I know I can do the technical side of things. I know I can find a composition, but it's just that, putting it all together each time. And, and you know, Bill, Bill, Bill mentioned that we go out and we take awful, awful images. Uh, maybe not Ian, but I... Oh I, yeah, I, everything I
1: take is absolutely perfect, 100%. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I just line it up.
2: <laughs> you know like I couldn't tell you how many terrible terrible photos I take um, because part of it is the exploration of the process and trying different things and being creative and you know what works right like I've had the experience I know I can go out with a wide-angle lens and focus here do this kind of for I know it's gonna work but after a while you start to wonder well maybe I want to try something different I want to grow personally and so you're always looking I think for a challenge
1: yeah definitely I um you know, I think you're absolutely right that, that it's always a struggle because you're always trying to take it to the next level, to, to refine your vision. And I've gotten to the point where when I go to a location, I will not spend anything less than at least a week, preferably two weeks, in a spa. Because I know how challenging it is to really take that scene or subject and bring it to its fullest potential. And... Especially when you're going to exotic locations and spending a lot of money to get there and, and putting in a lot of time. You don't want to walk away having missed getting the best shot you possibly can. So that, to me, is the constant struggle, is, is finding a way to translate every experience I have into a meaningful photograph. That, that's something that I want to share with other people. And finding a way to, to make it meaningful to them as well. And, and I'll never think that that's easy. It's always difficult and it's always, it gets increasingly difficult because the, the better you get, the harder it is to improve. And it starts becoming marginal return. So you have to work extra hard to take that photograph up to the next level. So it's always a struggle. Another
0: question? My question, and hmm? uh, I don't know if this is something that you experience, uh, but I enjoy photography a tremendous amount and you we are talking about experiences, and I enjoy it, there's a lot of things that I'll take and I like, but then when I look at other people, some of my peers work, I think my oh, I'm
2: so good,
0: and, and and I'm not at that level, and sometimes it puts me in a funk, and I'm like, good, I'm need to do this, but I enjoy it, mm-hmm. and so how do I get that out of my head to just love it, and love it for what it is, and not, so the question is when you are know, comparing your work to those of others, sometimes you feel like you know, you know what and you want to, how do you get out of that, that situation?
1: That, that's a fantastic question and it, it's something that uh, you know I constantly struggle with. We're our own worst critics always uh, and a lot of times you'll see something in someone else's work that you don't see in your own because you're very familiar with your work whereas you look at someone else's it's, it's a new experience and so you're like wow that's amazing. So you're, you're probably selling yourself a little bit short. But there are times when, you know, I we all have limits as artists. We all we all see things a certain way. And certain types of scenes or compositions are easy for me, and some are very challenging. And a lot of times I feel like, wow, I really suck. I what am I why am I doing this? <laughs> I can't I can't produce the images that I want. I can't translate uh, what's in my head into into something that works. Um, and I'm just always reminding myself that I'm doing it because it's something I love. And, and ultimately, success or lack of success doesn't really matter. Even if, even if I couldn't take good photos, I'd probably still be doing it because I, I love it so much. But to me, the one thing, whenever I'm in a rut, whenever I, I, I'm losing inspiration or getting down on myself, the one thing that always gets me back is just forcing myself to make more images, pouring myself into the work. Uh, And, you know, sometimes it's trying something different, trying a different style of photography, something to shape things up. Sometimes it's going back to that same place and subject that you photographed 30 times and trying it again. Just to try to crack that nut and figure out how to make it work. Uh, You know, I've got a lot of dead ends where where I've tried to photograph something and no matter how hard I try, I can't get it to be what I want it to be. But trying, forcing yourself to, to, to be in the process is the absolute most important thing you can do as a photographer. Constant creativity
2: is what I tell people. And I think uh, Ian really hit the nail on the head that you're selling yourself short because when you look at somebody's portfolio online, they're presenting their best work. They're presenting their 100% number one hits. So you look at that and you go, oh, every photo they take is so good. (laughs) And then you go to your Lightroom catalog and you go, oh, God. (laughs) One photo out of 10,000. And I go through the same thing. And I wish that I had the ability to look at my own portfolio from somebody else's eyes because you are so intimately familiar with your own work and how many failures it took to get to that success. And... So, um, yeah, like I was looking at Josh's
1: work last night. I haven't looked at his work in a while.
2: And you said, how many failures is this guy going to Right. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does he
1: get up the morning? And I, 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 I was just, <laughs> I, w- I had to stop looking at it after a few minutes because I was like, oh, my God, he's really shooting some great stuff. You know, I, it's, it's been a few months since I looked at your work, and in those few months you've been just going nuts, apparently. It's amazing.
2: Um, but and, what, what he doesn't see is right. Right. all the right. crap that <laughs> <laughs> like, didn't make the cut. But all the experiments that you do are all the times you go to a location, and and, and I, I, I'm i an engineer, I try to break things down into little, little packets, little analytical packets, right? So if you've got good subject, compelling composition, good camera technique, and good light, then you've got the opportunity for a great photo. And if you're missing one of those four things, oh, and you know, of course, Great photo manipulation skills, as we okay. tell you. <laughs> but uh, if you've got those, if you don't have those four things, if you're missing one, you're missing three, you're missing three, you probably don't have a great photograph. And that is the norm, right? That's what you're going to get 95% of the time. You're going to have amazing light and you're in the wrong spot. Or you're going to have a killer composition with crappy light or you just have your iPhone with you or something like that. And the, the times that all of those things come together are very rare. Because you just have, to, like you said, you have to keep shooting, knowing that eventually, you know, you're gonna, you, all the elements are gonna come together, and then you're gonna create a photo that you go, this is great. Yeah. And
0: and, and, sorry, to interrupt. do you have time for maybe one more
2: question? Okay. So well, I like just
1: say something really quick. One thing I need to emphasize, you know, we travel the world to exotic places. You don't need to travel to exotic places to find great photos. You can find inspiration. One thing, when I'm, when I'm at home, I love going into Minneapolis, my hometown. Uh, and taking pictures there. And I find inspiration right there in my hometown. You, you don't have to go all around. You can find amazing photos anywhere. Uh, but you just have to get out there and try. So, sorry.
2: Okay, I, I hope it's a quick question. You were just saying that when you go into London and you see all these bad photos and you have one out of so many that you think are good. How do you decide how many, which one you're going to keep and if you don't and what not to keep when you're going through your
0: photos. So uh, the question is about editing. When you take so many yeah. photos and only a few of them are good, how do how you decide which ones are, are the good ones?
1: Something that Josh said earlier, you have to, or maybe it was Bill. It was Bill, actually, sorry. I'll take credit right. for, for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to have confidence in your vision. Uh, I, I, I hear this question a lot and and a lot of times when I was leading towards a workshop, people would ask, you know, well, which of these photos should be the ones that I, I pick from my permanent portfolio? And I said, well, that's, I can't tell you that. That's up to you. Uh, you just have to have confidence in your vision. It can be tough. I mean, you know, I agonize sometimes, so I take A or B. Uh, and I, you just got to pick it, but you, you got to trust your gut. Usually when I'm shooting, uh, I'll know when I'm shooting that it's, it's coming together and it's going to work. Uh, sometimes a little I'm a little surprised when I actually see the results. But often I know something good is happening and going on. Uh, but you just have to have confidence in your own vision. And if you make the wrong choice, it's okay. You know, you put the one up that's not quite as good, I sh- no one's going to notice, first of all. <laughs> and you can always, you know, put a different one up later. But uh, just, you got you to gotta make it. If I
0: can add something, you can be your own worst critic at times. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. You a good point. You don't overthink. It. Just trust your gut and, and go with it.
2: And I think the more that you shoot, the more that you develop your own intuition and vision. To know, and you get into a, a state in the field where you know what you're trying to accomplish. It's not like, I think there's a good photo here and I'm gonna maybe like poke at it. And it's like, this is what I see and this is how I'm gonna try to accomplish it. That makes it way easier. Then you get in the light room and you go, well, that's the one that, that I was trying to bring And the worst thing you can do is to let
1: Facebook pick the best image for you. <laughs> 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 one three
0: we do we still have some time?
1: Okay. All right, that's <laughs> I, just, oh, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to observe also, especially for landscape photographers, at least in my experience, when you're out there and you see it, you this awesome scenery or whatever it is, um, and then you even the same night you go back and uh, start to look at them, and say, "But that's these are nothing like what I experienced when I was out there taking it." Go back six months later and. Just, You'll see. I think you'll see that what these, like, these images are really awesome. These these are great images. Mm-hmm. You just have to, be, uh, when you take a photograph, you're in the scene and you know it, and you're impressed with it. Yeah. But when you look at your pictures, expectation not, is here. Reality is here. Mm-hmm. But but reality might actually be pretty good. It's just that, your expectation is too high. Yeah yeah. I want to thank you, um.
0: If you speak anything besides English. English. Uh,
1: the question is, do you speak any other languages besides English? Uh, oui, oui, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's all I know in French. <laughs>
2: uh, um, chinese, chinese, No, no chinese No Chinese. I speak Kiwi pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have very uh, mediocre Spanish and mediocre French.
0: Okay, so... I think we are already over our time. <clears throat> i just like to spend a few seconds to thank you for being such a great guest. Lots of uh, great insight and inspiration here today. I hope you will agree with me. So, thanks again. Uh, I'd like to fill our little uh, evaluation forms if you like it. Uh, so, thanks for, for being here today. Yeah,
1: and thank, yes, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys.